that was incredibly easy. Yeah, it was a fantastic. Yeah, it was a fantastic episode. <laughs> what? I mean, we did no work. It was such a. Yeah, we basically didn't have to try. We just sat back and, I... and, and listened. And what a lesson. Oh my goodness. I know. I'm actually really excited to edit this episode. Uh, well, I think um, you're going to have a good time because uh, there's not a missed word. There's a, He was just on fire. No. We are talking, of course, about Father Robert Spitzer. Uh, Father Robert Spitzer is the past president of, of, of Gonzaga University. He's a Jesuit priest. Uh, he's a frequent guest on EWTN. He's uh, also been a host on EWTN. He's the founder of the Magis Center. The Magis Center. I might have said that wrong. I don't know. Anyway, really an, just an incredible priest. But we got him on to talk about near-death experiences, which is a pretty neat topic by itself, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, and... I guess it, it's it's significantly more frequent than I realized. Way more frequent you know? than I realized. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that and was cool. and more importantly, the evidence is is way better than I realized. To see the level of documentation and study yeah. that they have done on this specific phenomenon is yeah. outstanding. So so in short, I would say this. If you are someone who is uh, Either, either willingly or unwillingly skeptical about things like this, about the following, about near-death experiences, about miracles, and about um, the Shroud of Turin. And that third one might sound like it's sound might sound like it's off-topic, and it is a little. It's bit. a tangent. It's the tangent. So you know. But 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 the <laughs> it's a tangent. But the the documentation, the evidence that Father Spitzer gave us today was incredible this is the episode for you if you have if you have approached these three topics and said eh, i'm not sure you know, listen to this that, episode i used that word a few times at the, especially at the end incredible and i think i should walk that back because incredible if we break it down etymologically means right. not to be believed but yeah and fact, at one point i said unbelievable the, in so fact, same it is. same deal. <laughs> this, the, this is the yeah. This is the kind it's of thing ultra credible, <laughs> astonishing, surprising, fascinating. Yeah, many other things. Sure, but incredible might not be quite the right word because yeah, it, this yeah, actually makes these things so credible. This gives yeah. such reason to believe, and that's part of the beauty too. Because this is that reminder that the, the things that we see so often as just a religious phenomena or a spiritual phenomena, these are actually things that have have profound, profound scientific data to back them up. And it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. powerful. And just what a great guy to have on. Uh, I'm oh, so fantastic. thrilled. Thank you. And so Matt, much fun. For getting him. Thank you for booking yeah, this one. I enjoyed it too. So <laughs> I, I appreciate you very much for that. Enjoy. And we are good to go. Father Spitzer, welcome to The Tangent. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a real honor to be with you guys today. Thank you. Now, we are interviewing you today about near-death experiences and and basically anything <laughs> else that comes up. We are called The Tangent. Um, and tangent. But, but I got to tell you, I was, I was extraordinarily excited about, you know, when I found out that we could have you on the show. Um, because I think this is a topic that reaches out to people, you know? It's like, it's just wacky enough, you know, mm-hmm. that 
that it, it opens eyes, you know? So for example, we had, uh, we had father Vincent Lampert on, he's a, he's an exorcist uh-huh. just a couple weeks ago. And the amount of people that were like, man, I gotta listen to that episode, Yeah, you know? Cause it's, it's just, it's just enough out of the ordinary. Right. Um, so I guess here's my first question for you. Let's define terms. What is a near death experience? Well, a near-death experience uh, normally has two phases. Um, The first is when clinical death occurs. So when a person has a heart attack or uh, something Mm. equally traumatic, which causes oxygen to stop flowing uh, to the brain for at least 15 to 20 seconds, then uh, the brain uh, begins to uh, shut down because there's no electrical voltage uh, going through it. So when you get to the point where there's no voltage at all uh, in the uh, cerebral cortex and the frontal cor- cortex and minimum amount in the, the lower brain and the brainstem, uh, you get what's called flat EEG and then fixed and dilated pupils, uh, no gag reflex. When that occurs, um, many patients report, uh, both uh, children and adults, report that uh, a soul body leaves their physical body. I use the word soul body with a hyphen there because um, it doesn't have, uh, even though it it sort of looks like what you looked like when you were 30 or so, um, it it doesn't have physical qualities, structures, and processes uh, in it. So in other words, it can go through walls because it's not inhibited by those physical structures. It can yes. defy gravity because it is not subject to those physical laws. Now, at that juncture, um, some people go through a tunnel, most people do, come out the other side and find that uh, when they're through the tunnel, they're looking at themselves from above and a little bit beyond uh, where their physical body might be lying. Uh, so if it's in an operating room or something, they can see the body there uh, in the operating room. And in the first phase, um, you know, a veridical data is frequently uh, recorded, remembered and recorded and uh, recalled. Um, and so uh, after the fact, when a person is, uh, uh, comes back into his physical body, uh, he can report, for example, to um, independent researchers after the fact, well, um, you know, I went through the hospital walls. And as one lady said, Um, You know, I was hovering up by the third floor of the hospital, and I saw a tennis shoe on the ledge um, outside the hospital as I was hovering there. The shoelace was stuck underneath the heel. It was a worn left toe. And if you go outside that hospital, you're going to see it because I saw exactly what was going on in that hospital when I was clinically dead. So, of course, uh, one of the researchers goes out on the ledge, and sure enough, there's the tennis shoe with the shoelace, etc., so um, there's all kinds of other things that happen. We have, by the way, truly uh, a thousand cases of accurate, 100% accurate veridical data reported by these patients. A completely unique sets of circumstances. It couldn't have been predicted by anybody. You know, they're, they're unique things that are going on, like the tennis shoe. You know, a person, you know, the, the, you know comes in and says, oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so, we lost your dentures. No, no, you didn't. The red-haired nurse. Uh, you know, grab those dentures and uh, uh, out of my mouth uh, right before you guys put the paddles on me and, and throw them into a drawer underneath a machine that looks like this. So if you go down to the OR, you're going to find my dentures, and sure enough, there <laughs> they are. But this, 
The second is not just these thousands of cases of veridical data that are reported 100% accurately during the time when you couldn't do anything, right? Flat EEG, fixed dilated pupils, you don't have any electrical activity going on in your, you know, thinking, mm. your cognitional, um, you know, cortices, nor in your visual or auditory lobes. Uh, you are basically uh, mentally dead. And so uh, when that occurs, um, you know, you, you shouldn't be able to see anything. Yet 100% accurately, that's pretty amazing. But it's the blind people that are really significant because in the um, uh, Kenneth Ring studies, um, 80% of blind people, most of whom were blind from birth, see for the first time when they're clinically dead. So for that is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And they too report veridical data huh. of things going on outside the operating room. So, so we got this kid like Brad Bradley Burroughs, you know, one of the many, many examples. Uh, he's a sixteen year old kid, blind from birth. He goes right through the hospital walls, right? He's sitting out there and he goes, Wow, I'm seeing snow uh, for the first time in my life. And uh, while I'm looking at this and just seeing how beautiful it looked. I saw the the, the grooves uh, in the uh, in the snow um, that were there, and uh, not only that, I, I actually uh, um, it saw uh, those uh, grooved areas from the tr for train tracks going right into a grove of trees that was in the distance off to the right. And sure enough, a train came by. And the one thing trains have, of course, are schedules, and you can coordinate that train schedule with the time that Bradley Burroughs underwent, you know, clinical death, like EEG, et cetera. So basically, he, the train goes by, he describes it perfectly, says there's a big sign on the back of the train with an arrow pointing to the right, and sure enough, that train passes right by the hospital, goes right down the tracks, <sighs> and goes to the right into the grove of trees in the distance, and that's exactly what happened at the exact time that Bradley had his experience clinical death. So when you start looking at that, you know, you can't say hallucination will explain that. You can't say that stimulation of the parietal lobe will explain that because blind people don't have any visual images to hallucinate in their physical brain. I mean, these have got to be the real yeah. deal. By the way, they couldn't have seen it anyway with their physical eyes. So, I mean, the point is pretty clear. The evidence now is so convincing that the New York Academy of Sciences in 2022, basically in their proceedings, uh, writes that there's a credible possibility uh, that your consciousness is going to survive <clears throat> your bodily death. And that's proven in many excellent um, peer-reviewed medical uh, published wow. studies. Uh, like in um, the Lancet and so forth. Wow. So, if we're looking at these at these experiences, um, we're going to see that there's a there's still sort of a temporal reality to them. This is something that they're experiencing oh, yeah. while they're while they're they're looking at their immediate surroundings in the hospital room or in in the room that they were in or or, or just outside, outside. right? So that there's a. Yeah. A yeah. very real way in which this is like the this is the stuff that's happening right now. So real world world circumstances. My dentures are in that drawer. Um, the red haired the red haired <laughs> nurse grabbed them. Um, yeah. yeah, you meant yours. My, yeah, you my dentures. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but as 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 we look at that, and by the way, never speak uh, badly of the dead. <laughs> 
because many people go right into the waiting room next door and <laughs> they're going to hear the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So if we're looking at somebody who might maybe be kind of skeptical about this or, or have some questions, these would be the kinds of stories that tell them that there is something more than just clinical death. There's something more than just this physical body that can't quite be explained. But a lot of these... Yeah, and if they... Well, I was going to oh, say, sorry, a lot of these ahead. stories don't just include that immediate stepping into the next room or stepping outside the hospital. A lot of these stories is- also include that that tunnel that you were talking about and moving towards the light and a voice and an experience of, of a spiritual presence, knowing something of, of God that they, that they didn't know before. Um, that's right. So I, I, I like kind of this approach of let's, let's just talk about the, the immediate stuff, the dentures in the drawer. That's, that's a really good story. The blind who have these visions and who are able to describe uh, visual things uh, very accurately. Yeah. But what's happening in those spiritual experiences? Well, and the spiritual ones, uh, that's the phase two part. So that's the second phase. You move from this world to another worldly domain. Um, uh, Adults, about um, uh, 85% of adults um, will have, uh, uh, you know, will have, uh, will go to a very pleasant domain. Let me put it that way. A beautiful domain oftentimes includes their relatives, and uh, you know a loving white light that they perceive as unconditionally loving, and all pain disappears. About fifteen percent of adults uh, actually experience a, um, what I would call a very dark, um, uh, otherworldly experience. So they would be moving into an area which is uh, either very empty, alienating, and lonely. Uh, occurs frequently in a lot of suicide cases. Mm-hmm or sometimes into a very horrifying world uh, that is populated by um, almost demonic uh, sorts of presences and beings that are uh, very um, um, cruel themselves. Uh, And these would normally pertain to people that were kind of cruel uh, during their lives and and so forth. So in any case, um, uh, children, on the other hand, uh, pretty much are 100% go to a very pleasant uh, place and so forth. Now, the ones, the adults that actually go to a very um, uh, uh, beautiful and pleasant place, um, a significant number of them will, uh, some relatives, and it's about 95% of the time it's relatives, 5% it's friends, but about 95% of the time a relative of, um, of the person, and sometimes, oftentimes, the relative was not hitherto known uh, by the patient. So in other words, um, you know, the person will come along and say, well, I'm your aunt so-and-so. And And he goes, oh, I didn't even know they had an aunt so-and-so. Well, that's because I died 20 years before you were born. I'm sort of like your great aunt. Oh, okay. Um, You know, but I knew your mom and I knew, you know, your your grandmother. And, you know, I just want to tell you that uh, now is not your time and so forth and so on and I just wanted to um, also have you deliver a message to your mom that I'm just fine. I'm in heaven. Uh, and, um, you know, here's a, a positive proof. Here is the uh, nickname of the teddy bear that we had, uh, you know, um, uh, that, uh, that I gave uh, to her uh, when she was just a little girl. And, of course, you know, uh, uh, the mother, of course, never disclosed this or anything like it uh, to uh, – the the the, uh, the 
the person who's experiencing this now, and he goes back and tells them. So now um, uh, Bruce Grayson and Emily Kelly at the University of Virginia Medical School uh, Department of Perceptual Studies, they basically uh, um, uh, you know, have been cataloging for quite some time uh, these experiences where um, someone will report, I met this hitherto unknown relative, and he or she told me um, you know, that uh, uh, you know, some information that I had no idea about and I really couldn't possibly have known, but my mom or my dad mm. or somebody verified that that information was exactly correct and um, uh, so forth. So, I mean, you can get like that, uh, remember Colton Burpo uh, in, the, uh, in the book, um, Heaven is yeah. for Real. Um, you know, he's just a little four-year-old kid. But nevertheless, uh, when he goes uh, up to heaven, um, the interesting thing is he right away meets his sister. And she comes right out and hugs him and says, he goes, well, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, oh, I'm, I'm your sister. Well, I don't think you are. You know, my sister uh, doesn't quite look like you. And she goes, well, no, I'm your other sister who, you know, uh, I died in mommy's tummy when I was only two months uh -huh. old. And then I came here and I'd been growing up in heaven. And uh, he goes, well, what's your name? You know, and she goes, well, I, I wasn't given a name because mommy and daddy didn't know whether I was a boy or a girl. So, of course, Colton goes back, and at one point, he's just, you know, he's four years old, right? He doesn't think, you know. Yeah. So, one day, he's at breakfast or something with his mother, and he goes, you know, Mom, I met my sister in heaven. And she goes, she's not in heaven. She's right here. And he goes, not that sister, my other sister. And, of course, you know, the mother goes, well, what other sister? You, you don't have another sister. Oh, yes, I do. She was two months old when she died in your tummy. And the mother, wow. of course, knows exactly what he's talking about. And she's beginning to drop her you know, mouth open. And he goes, well, what's her name? And he tells her, well, you and daddy didn't know whether she was a boy or a girl, so you didn't name her. And the mother, of course, starts crying and so forth. But the main thing is this happens all the time. So the Kellys and uh, Bruce Grayson over at um, uh, University of Virginia Medical School, they've been cataloging uh, these uh, things. And it's an impressive group of uh, you know, stories of people who have data that wouldn't have otherwise been known. So, I mean, again, um, you know, there's something there. But that is not just the, the end of the story. Oh, by the way, one other thing. You look like you looked when you were about tw between 25 to 30. And this happens all the time where people will say, well, is this your grandfather? The grandfather will come down and meet with a person or something. And he goes, no, that's not him. He's too old. So they go, oh, okay, well, let's look for somebody younger here. But they bring up the grandfather when he's 30 and they put a picture up and go, yep, huh. that's him. You know, and so, of course, you know, yeah. again, you can see that uh, there's been sort of a – you know, the, the little girl, the two-month-old, is growing up, whereas the uh, older people wind up looking like they looked when they were uh, around 30. But in any case, the identification is clear. What's even more interesting is the encounter with the white light. 
So maybe after encountering a deceased relative and friend, or they may not have dis, uh, encountered a, a deceased relative, but only the white light. When you come into the presence of the white light, of course, all pain disappears, emotional, physical, psychological, etc. So when that occurs, then um, you know the person feels utterly, utterly affirmed. Now, the white light may go through a judgment, may go through some kind of a, what they call a life review uh, with the person, and that might cause some degree of regret um, and, and things. But nevertheless, after the life review, there is clearly acceptance and love on the part of this unrestrictedly loving, very bright light that doesn't hurt the eyes. Most adults identify the white light with either God or Christ. However, little kids, when they identify Christ, it's not as this loving white light, um, this uh, transformed, uh, you know, that transforms their their being and away from pain. It's rather um, a, a figure, a very physical-looking figure mm. in heaven. And so, uh, very similar to Colton's experience. Colton Burbo's experience of Jesus, very typical of little kids. They'll say, no, I saw Jesus in heaven, but it's not a white light. It's it, it's a person, and, you know, he looked like, you know, uh, they tried to describe him, you know, with the, the longish hair and so forth and so on. And um, so, they say, okay, um, well, um, you know, identify his picture. We've got about uh, 30 Jesuses here to look at. And, um, you know, you can uh, take a look. And, of course, now Colton, right away, he goes through these pictures. And when he gets to this one picture that a lot of kids, not all of them for sure, but um, a large, large percentage of kids see that picture and go, that's (laughs) him. Well, where did that picture came from? Um, uh, This little girl, I I believe her name was Carmenac or something, or uh, um, uh, and uh, you can just look at it on Google, but she had visions of Jesus when she was a little kid, and she had an extraordinary capacity for art and was able uh, to kind of sketch this picture, and then it was kind of, you know, gussied up, if I can put <laughs> it that way, by a professional artist, and um, they slipped this in with the other 30 pictures, right? The sacred art pictures and all the other pictures, and you know, Colton or the other kids will just go, you know, oh, not that, not that. There he is. That's that's Jesus right there. And, of course, uh, again, it, it just coincides with um, how Jesus appeared to this little girl who had the artistic proclivities. But uh, to make a long story short, um, th- this is pretty consistent stuff um, for people, um, you know, who go to heaven and little kids who go to heaven. And uh, there's all kinds of other data, too. I mean, Honestly, once you um, have a near-death experience and you're in this beautiful heavenly domain without the pain and encounter the white light or Jesus if you're a little kid, basically what's going on there is the um, um, uh, you, you lose your what's called death anxiety. Mm. And death anxiety is, is a subconscious anxiety. I mean, you can also have conscious death anxiety, but a religious person... Uh, basically controls his death anxiety because of his faith. He, he, you know, he's not going to suffer or she's not going to suffer from it. However, um, you can't get rid of the subconscious death anxiety. 
So if I start showing you ink blots or um, I start showing you sketches of crossbones and skulls and sharks and daggers and blood, you know, if I put a modif modified polygraph on you uh, to measure the sympathetic nervous system response, if I put that on you and I show you those death symbols, you're going to react. Mm. And you can't, it's subconscious, so you can't control what's going on on that subconscious, unconscious level, but your sympathetic nervous system, sure, <laughs> you recognize it, you react to it. But if you have a near-death experience, it's wow. gone. It's 100% gone. And that, by the way, even if you had that um, near-death experience as a little bit, goes to you 30 or 40 years wow. old. Wow. So we've got this the, these, these phases or, or different types, right? So the First, kind of the experience mm -hmm. of leaving the body and being in the in the general area, and then the experience of, of actually going to another place and being in the presence of uh -huh. God, encountering Jesus, um, yeah. anything like that. Money. Is there a third stage that's like the the return, coming back to the body? Well, the return is not really a stage. It's just normally what happens is either the white light, or in the case of um, you know a lot of other people that relatives. Right, uh, we'll say, well, you know, this is not your time, mm. and of course, a lot of people just go, well, I don't want to go. Yeah. I, I want to stay here, and they go, well, no, you, you, you have something you have to do, and then, well, what's that? You know, I'm not at liberty to disclose that to you. You, there is a purpose for you in your life, and this is going to be important, but you'll come back. So just you know, stay on the path you're staying on. Complete your purpose, and all will be well. You know, it's it's so, of course it's really interesting that you bring that up. That there's a, a hesitancy to go back. I I know a priest uh, who's yep. he's now deceased, but uh, many years before yeah. he had a heart attack, and he actually had this experience of clinical death, and he had the uh -huh. experience of feeling himself leaving his body, and seeing the light and hearing the voice of Jesus speaking to him, and knowing that he was in the presence of God. And when he was when he was told it's not your time, uh, and he and he came back, he would always he would always say, and anytime you got him to talk about this story, and he didn't like to talk about it too much, but he'd just say, "I want to go back, I want to go back." Yeah. And I always thought that was a very profound thing. Oh yeah, well that's that's the reaction of a whole lot of people is uh, I have to go back, you know, or sometimes it's just an announcement that you're going back. You know, and before you know it, there they are back in their bodies again. But the remnant is always there. The memory is so powerful, it actually uh, totally gets rid of uh, a subconscious or unconscious uh, death mm. anxiety. So if we're looking at this, we're going to see that there's now all right, the psychological death anxiety. And they've, they've, they're recognizing that this is mm. taken away by, by this experience. Uh, the medical field knows that people can clinically die and come back, and now there's this data that's mm -hmm. that's being added to it that suggests there is something that's mm -hmm. not medical that's happening. There is there is something on oh, this yeah. soul level. But to my knowledge, are, are there are is the medical community acknowledging the soul? Uh, how is this how is this all kind of taken in in that in that scientific community because now there's data that says that this happens there's consistent testimony that says that this happens so how is it received in that scientific well, area yeah I mean uh, obviously when the New York Academy of Sciences uh, 
uh, proceedings last year declared that you have a credible possibility that your consciousness will survive bodily death. That is incredible. Yeah. I mean, even 15 years ago, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, a society with that high prestige and such careful consideration of their articles actually publishing something like that. But today, because of the overwhelming number of, um, you know, uh, uh, cases of not only veridical data mm -hmm. like the dentures or the, you know, the tennis shoe or something, but also the 80% of blind people that see for the first time, it's simply inexplicable. But that's the first thing that has made, you know, the transition. And by the way, these are in really good, well-done studies. You, you have the Samuel Parnia study at the University of Southampton that's an excellent uh, uh, study there. That's a 2014 study with 2,060 patients, very carefully done, where he identifies a significant percentage of people for which, you know, whose conscious awareness can be proven, and it's inexplicable in physical terms. I mean, no oxygen to the brain, flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupil. What are we talking mm -hmm. about here? The furthermore, with the blind people, again, all physicalist explanations pale because stimulation of the brain, anoxia, hallucination, whether it's a drug-induced hallucination or, you know, uh, you know, droplets or, or, you know, stimulation of the parietal lobe, doesn't matter. I mean, there's no visual image in the brain to be hallucinated or stimulated. Right. But the differences between a hallucination anyway and a near-death experience are so vast. To begin with, in order to have a hallucination, you need electrical activity in the brain. In other words, if you don't have any electrical activity in the brain, you ain't going to hallucinate anything. And Matt, now, that's why you never hallucinate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's it. So you basically, um, if you see that uh, there's electrical activity, um, you know, then it's not a near-death experience. And if you have no electrical activity as you have in a near-death experience, it's not a hallucination. But that's not the only difference. I mean, hallucinations are downright weird. Yeah. They l are very different from the way reality is. Near-death experiences, the, uh, the visions that people have are 100% accurate. That's very different from weird, fragmented, distorted right. things. Right. And lastly, yeah. hallucinations yeah. produce extreme discomfort and even agitation and even anxiety. Whereas um, near-death experiences, unless you have one of the 15% that has a dark religious experience, if you have a good religious, uh, good um, uh, near-death experience, you have mm. peace, for sure peace, the removal of death, anxiety, etc. So totally yeah. different from all the physicalist explanation. I think it mounted up so much that basically the medical community has really begun to shift. Hey, by the way, I mean, the, um, the whole picture of, you know, um, uh, uh, the medical and scientific community has really shifted, uh, you know, itself. I mean, when Francis, um, 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 uh, uh, well, I, I should move that back. When um, the first uh, studies of, of scientists were done, that, this would be uh, um, uh, uh, even before Francis Collins, uh, you know, be basically 1945, 
there was a you know probably about uh, um, you know maybe forty uh, percent of the scientific community declared themselves to be theists. Uh, that's very you know there's a lot of people who just didn't answer the question, but basically it seemed like um, agnostics and atheists outweighed the, the theists at, uh, in that early age. That's not so today. The last um, uh, Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science had 51% of scientists declared themselves to be believers in God mm. or a higher transcendent power. 21% declared themselves agnostic. Only 20% declared themselves to be atheists. 8% were too scared to <laughs> declare, I guess. But uh, in any case, um, uh, the, the point, though, that was made is, oh, no, 20% atheists, 51% theists, things have changed. But here's the really interesting part. 66% of young scientists, 35 years of age or under, 66% declare themselves to believe in God or a higher transcendent mm. power. Only 15% uh, declare themselves agnostic and about 16, 15%, excuse me, declare themselves to be um, atheists. The medical community, now here, this answers your question. Figure this out. 75%, I'm sorry, 76% of the medical community, the doctors, believe um, in God or a higher transcendent power. Three quarters mm. profess belief in God or a higher transcendent power. Two thirds of them practice their religion. Now that is downright, really, yeah. totally much improved statistics. You know, from the days of Lourdes when all the miracles were starting to, to first happen, be manifest there, all the atheistic doctors that were out there. Boy, is that not true yeah. today? Um, now this is, of course, U.S. statistics. But the main thing is um, only 12.1% uh, um, are agnostics and 11.2% are atheists. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a, you know, a, a really a very credible um, survey now, of thousands of doctors. Would you so, think that that has anything to do with the idea that uh, as we've come to understand psychology more and, and just sort of the inner workings of the, of the human mind, that doctors... In their, in their own training have just become more sensitive to what's going on in the needs and, and the hearts of their patients. So they're, they're kind of better able to respond. So they see more than just the, the symptoms, more than just the disease and the, and the pathologies okay. and everything. So they're, they're now better equipped to understand a, 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 a reality that goes beyond just the physical and observable stuff that they have. Well, I think that's surely part of the equation. I think uh, three other things are part of the equation as well. Um, I think uh, these near-death experiences we've been talking about, there are a lot of clinical specialists who now say, yeah, I believe this happens, and I believe that there's a reality beyond um, the physical mm. body. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I, I see this just so evidently. Right, that there's that there's got to be that that reality, but I'm so fascinated by the documentation that you've been talking about, the way that they're studying this, and that well, they're, they're, that this is oh, taken yeah. so seriously because we hear about heaven is for real, and it's it's a cute little book um, that comes in adult version and a children's version, and it's it's great, like yeah, the word yeah. gets out there, but sometimes that. Yeah, it's anecdotal, right. but these are right. Studies. But to know that yeah. it's not only the anecdote that there's also these great studies that have been done it's, surrounding it is so fascinating. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And 
I think that's what's convincing to the doctors. And also, they get to hear it again and again. And I think the second major thing that's going on with doctors, I mean, 76%, that's a significant percentage of believers in God. I think it's the miracles thing. You know, HCT research and the Finkelstein Institute actually um, asked, you know, did a huge study of doctors of whether they believed in miracles past and present. 74% of doctors said they believed in miracles in the past. 73% believed in miracles in the present. Again, the reason, primary reason given was, in my own practice, I have seen naturalistically inexplicable events occurring, and they were always connected with prayer. That fact is bringing a lot of doctors to a belief in miracles who never Mm. would have had that, like 50 years ago, forget it. But now it's the... The cat's out of the bag, <laughs> as it were. And finally, you know, you've got the third area, which is a lot of studies that have been done on, um, you know, miraculous events. And even like the studies of Dr. Harold Koenig at um, Duke University, these are really excellent uh, studies. Again, they show that people of prayer not only, you know, have these miracles that sometimes occur, but it, they just plain have better physical and emotional health. I mean, this is statistically verifiable and brought out by several different studies that he and his colleagues at Duke University have assembled. Again, prayer. If you're a praying guy and a church-going guy, you're just plain going to have, and, and you're, you're kind of uh, you know living out your um, uh, faith with your moral and virtue practice, then basically you're going to have better physical and emotional health than someone mm. who doesn't. He breaks it down cardiologically, endocrinologically, et cetera, et cetera, all down the line. So, I mean, when you get to the end of it, I mean, if these studies, by the way, you can get a lot of them free on Google. Um, they're publishing, you know, top-rate journals and and uh, this is a top-rate institute at Duke, and uh, it's mm. very, very interesting uh, to look at. But I think, you know, the scientists, the doctors, they're starting to get the data. And um, it's really something that uh, that is beginning to, to make them think and get them a little bit over yeah. the line. Uh, even do um, the, the only one who admit to God, maybe a higher transcendent power. Fine. Right. Now, Father Spitzer, given that third piece, that people with religious faith and religious practice who are living according to their faith tend to have better health outcomes overall. Uh, as, as we look at these experiences of near-death experiences and, and all of this, um, can we shift a little bit and, and ask the theological purpose, the theological meaning of this? Like, Where is God in these, not just in the experience, but like through this near-death experience, what is God trying to bring to the world? Well, you know, my view is, you know, obviously a, a, a faith-filled Catholic. Uh, I think, you know, and I also happen to love science, and I also happen to love very methodical sociological studies. Um, and uh, there's no contradiction. This is also convenient. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly for a skeptical generation, right? I mean, you've got a skeptical, scientifically oriented generation. And young people, I mean, the Gen Zs, they're believers in science. They will tell you 
I mean, unquestionably, they believe that science has, you know, gotten to the truth. Isn't it shocking, finally, you know, uh, uh, when they see, you know, um, that, uh, that uh, wow, science is basically saying that belief in God is credible, belief in an afterlife is credible, and belief in a Christian afterlife is credible. Uh, that, that's, you know, all of a sudden you begin to look at that data and you think, Yiko, I wonder, um, you know, if um, the confluence is meant by God to convince, uh, you know, a generation of people. I, I started a, you know, a, a senior year curriculum and a middle school curriculum. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the senior year um, elective course, I should say, hmm. um, with Sophia yeah. Institute for Teachers uh, called The Catholic Faith and Science. And I've got a middle school curriculum called Speak the Faith, um, same thing. But basically what it's doing is it's taking all the recent data. I mean, it's like God is flooding us. He's opening up the floodgates with data that is so unbelievably persuasive and probative. I mean, these near-death experiences and the good studies, the studies of miracles, which are really good studies, the Duke University studies of people of prayer and how it affects your emotional and, 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 and physical lives. And not only that, but all the new data. I mean, Stephen Hawking coming out in 2018 and declaring, you know, that an infinite multiverse is, is really, it couldn't have been um, the, the kind of multiverse, a fractal multiverse that generated our universe. And to see, you know, the, the fine-tuning coincidences for life in the midst of that fact that we're you know, the only really tenable option that, that is left to us anymore is an intelligent creator. I mean, you start looking at this, and I said, I got to take all this evidence. I got to put it all in a book. And I got to get this delivered to our young people in a really credible course uh, for seniors and a credible course for middle schoolers, because that's where the problems start in middle school. And yeah. so that's, you know, you know if, uh, if people, you know, on the, on the program here, have kids in school, and your school has yet, not yet signed up for uh, the Catholic faith and science, just go to Sophia Institute for Teachers, like Sophia Wisdom, right? Uh, Sophia yeah. Institute for Teachers. Go to that. Uh, just click on the very first page. It'll come up as Catholic faith and science, of uh, course, um, practically speaking. Just look at it. Have the teachers look at it. Yeah. Do not take a chance that your kids are not going to see this. It makes all the difference in the world. And the Gen Zs are the most vulnerable. 50% of them who are church-going Catholics right now will lose it by the time they're a sophomore in college. This is not me. This is a Pew 2012, 2015, 2018 service, as well as the CARA survey that at Georgetown uh, Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. So all I'm saying is we got to get off the, you know, the— the, the you know the, the 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 diamond get moving here yeah our young people are desperately in need of this I love this idea this course I'm gonna we're gonna make sure we put that in the in the show notes so that you can find yeah, that yeah. link really easily um, yeah. but I think what what a brilliant thing great. to to and and these these kinds of stories though have such a power because the there's not just scientific fact being prevented but there's a narrative that goes with it and it's a story from a real person it's a it's a Absolutely. personal testimony and the personal testimony. For all of the scientific data, personal testimony always has a way of, of grabbing at the heart, doesn't it? And so these, oh, yeah. these people who have had a near-death experience who testify to it, and then to know that there's scientific uh, information, data, studies that back up what they're, what they're talking about, that's got to be a very powerful thing. 
Oh, yeah. It's yeah. hard to resist the fact that God kind of lined everything up. I mean, I do a lot on the Shroud of Turin relative to Jesus because the 1988 carbon dating has been completely debunked by about four different scientific tests. I mean, it's it was just, I, I, don't, I won't say it was a fraud, but it was certainly very mistaken in its outcomes. And now with a wide-angle X-ray scattering test that's been done that placed the Shroud to between 54 to 75 AD, I mean, that, that 1988 carbon dating is, is gonzo by the side. So the main thing is, well, what are we going to do with this um, uh, Shroud of Turin? And there is not only such detailed evidence of Christ's crucifixion on it, but really detailed evidence for his resurrection. And mm. again, the very question you posed, why is God making this all available now in this scientific age? Because... It's like he planned it 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I'm this skeptical scientist 2,000 years from now. Boy, are they going to be wowed when they see that God only the knew? part is, well, this is going to explain this. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you dig into the, the evidence for the resurrection on the yeah. Turin, Shroud of Turin? Yeah. Uh, just in, in a real uh, brief way here. I mean, uh, yeah. essentially three things are, are uh, there that are the telling signs. First of all, the image on the Shroud of of Turin is a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image emblazoned on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. So you're going to have to explain how the image got there. But remember, it's a photographic negative image. It's super precise. It's like it was taken by a camera. It's not bleeding into adjacent threads and so forth. It's like super precise. Then the really weird part is it's three-dimensional. That is to say, there's evidence from the inside of the body. So you can see, like, for example, the backbone, you can see it, but you can see it in three-dimensional proportionality to the flesh that surrounds the the backbone. So Uh. it's like an MRI image, which you can see with what's called visual digital analyzers, so you can see the three-dimensionality, the MRI effect, as it were, the layering uh, of the three-dimensional image. So you look at that and you go, I got to get a, one explanation that can give not only how the body became, tra- how you're going to get the backbone there unless the body becomes transparent enough, right, uh, right spiritual or something uh, enough to let the light signals or the particles uh, you know, emerge so that it can be captured on the shroud. Well, anyway, I'm going to cut through a whole bunch of history and explanation. The one thing to know <laughs> is that that um, image, it's sitting on the the uppermost surface of the fibrils, right? So in other words, the uh, the image itself is not, it has not penetrated into the middle of the threads, the, what's called the medulla of the threads or, or the, the fibrils, and fibers, and it has not penetrated into the middle of the cloth. So weird as this may seem, right, it's sitting there on the surface. So you got to explain that too, because huh. if it were a paint, um, you know, it would just, the liquid, right, would go right into the cloth, penetrate the surface of, of the uh, fibers. It would go right to the middle of the cloth, right to the middle of the fibers. It would uh, also spangle and go to adjacent of fibers and so forth and so on. If you had a vapor, the same effect would occur, except it'd be worse because the the you know the uh, 
the vapors would have begin to, begun to dis- dissipate as they're approaching uh, the cloth. So there's action at a distance here, right? Remember, the cloth does not touch every part of the body, yet there's an imaging that goes on every part of the body. So it has to be action at a distance. It has to be a, a result that is exceedingly precise. It has to be an explanation that doesn't penetrate the fibers and fibrils, that it has to be right on the surface of the cloth, and it has to be an explanation that can act at a distance and get three-dimensional layering uh, you know, that's analyzable by a, vigi- a visual a data analyzer. Hmm. Now, you look at that and you go, what explanations do this? Well, first of all, it has to be radiation alone. Scorching can't do it. Paints can't do it. Vapors can't do it. Rubs can't do it. Has to be radiation. That's the only thing that can act at a distance and give that kind of precision. What kind of radiation is the question? Well, there's two possible candidates. One possible candidate, uh, this is the John Jackson and, and colleagues' hypothesis, um, is that it, it's vacuum ultraviolet radiation, a columnated vacuum ultraviolet radiation uh, of in very intense um, uh, wattage. So it would be somewhere between six to eight billion. That's with a B billion watts. That's like a half a million searchlights worth of columnated vacuum ultraviolet radiation emerging from that dead body, but it can only be for one forty billionth of a second. Now, because otherwise it would just turn that linen into ashes. So I was thinking that exact same thing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that it could only be one forty billionth of a second, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I figured you got there pretty quickly, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> so so it's it's emblazoned there. Now, if you look at that, you know, dead bodies don't normally do that, right? I mean, they, they don't <laughs> no, normally emit five hundred thousand searchlights worth of light energy from every part of the. <laughs> so that's unusual. And secondly, of course, bodies don't normally turn mechanically transparent, right? So that you know they don't become spiritual, so you can get inside data as well as uh, surface data. So anyway, there's that's one of the hypotheses. But that there are 42 enigmas on the shroud. About 21 of them are explained by the columnated vacuum ultraviolet radiation hypothesis with six to eight billion watts of light energy. All, um, um, on the other hand, there's another uh, explanation called the particle radiation hypothesis. This one explains all 42 enigmas. So obviously, I'm very partial to it. Um, because I can't imagine another more complete explanation. Every single one of the enigmas on the cloth are explained by this um, hypothesis. So what is it? What they basically occurs, and this is, by the way, this was done by Jean-Baptiste Reynaudo in France at the Institut Physique, and also by Kitty Little at Harwell Labs in Great Britain, and, Sir, um, and of course, Arthur Lind, uh, here in the United States. So the, this is a, a good, a well-tested hypothesis. Um, um, and uh, basically it holds that the um, uh, whole body of Jesus um, at one moment, uh, let's just say at least 30 hours after the body is placed in the shroud, but before, right, um, you know, uh, rigor mortis and other kinds of things will really settle in uh, you know, to have the, the distortion, and not just rigor mortis, but I mean, um, the bodily fluids would begin to emerge and the decomposition of the body would be evident on the cloth. So it's got to be around 30 hours 
in that area, maybe a little more or so, uh, but you can uh, pretty much see that around that time, um, uh, the body uh, simultaneously undergoes nuclear disintegration. That's a low temperature nuclear reaction that occurs. Now, when that disintegration occurs, it's a pure miracle because the odds of having seven octillion, there's seven octillion perfectly stable atomic nuclei in a body. They just don't go around disintegrating, right? <laughs> the odds of this happening, that you're going to have seven octillion, that's like a trillion, 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 um, perfectly stable atomic nuclei suddenly disappear all at the same time, all simultaneously, is about 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 40 to 1. That's like a monkey typing the first chapter of Macbeth perfectly by random tapping of the keys in a single try. Not going to happen. So let's suppose that this is the explanation, that suddenly the entire body of Jesus undergoes low-temperature nuclear reaction that con- that, uh, um, in which all of the um, uh, stable atomic nuclei in the body begin to undergo disintegration. This will give rise simultaneously to two flows of particles. There's going to be beta, uh, there's going to be, let's say, positively charged particles. Well, just charged particles, which are heavy particles. So let, these would be like protons and deuterons. Now, these that flow of particles, that, remember, it has positive charge. So it's going to react with the negatively charged particles right on the, in the linen cloth, and when those particles hit the very surface fibrils of the linen cloth, those protons and deuterons will interact with the electrons in the cloth and stop. But they will not only stop, they will stop and embed themselves into the surface of the cloth, and it will turn the cloth, you know, make the cloth more friable. So in other words, it'll make the cloth kind of crispy. So a very, very strong indication that the particle was there and then if this happens enough times, it makes it a very precise uh, image right on the surface of the fibrils. Now there's another kind of particle flow that will happen, and that's a neutron flow. Neutrons don't have a charge. So what do they do? They just go right through the cloth. But when they're going right through the cloth, they're irradiating the blood while they're doing it, and they're also um, uh, you know, breaking up what we call weak linear uh, carbonyl bonds. And then when those carbonyl bonds are reconstituted, they reconstitute around a crystalline structure. Now, those crystalline structures are much stronger than the linear um, carbonyl bonds, right, that were there previously. And so we should expect to find that the cloth is extraordinarily strong and resistant to solvents and all kinds of other things, which in fact, they the cloth is. So now you look at this. I'll just give you four enigmas explained, and you can, I'm telling you right now, all 42 <laughs> are explained. But first of all, we always wondered, hey, let's suppose this was a big old fraud, right? So you got, um, you know, um, the apostles, they're going to go in there and swipe um, Jesus's body, and they're going to have to take it, the shroud off of the body before they swipe the body. So uh, let's suppose they pull that shroud off after the, of course, the blood that's on the cloth and the blood that's remaining on the body, uh, right? The, you know, it's going to tear all those blood stains, fragments, segment, 
smear all those bloodstains. There are 372 bloodstains on the shroud. All of them are going to get somehow fragmented and segmented and, and smeared, et cetera. But there's not a single smearing, fragmenting, or segmenting of the 372 bloodstains on the shroud. So, hey, wait a minute. No mechanical or human device could have been used to take that shroud off the body. So how could that have happened? How could it have happened? Well, if the body disappears, totally disappears, with all of its particles being embedded in the very linen in which it is contained, well, then you don't have to worry. Because the blood that was on the surface of the body, is if that doesn't disappear, it just remains on the cloth, and the body underneath it disappears. You got an explanation. We, wow. There was nothing we could have, no way to explain how we could have got up the body, uh, you know, if that body had still been there. But if it disappeared, that's fine. Number two, here's a, we always wondered, why are all those 372 bloodstains bright red? Why in the world is that happening? Well, because, right, you've got this, um, um, uh, new, these neutrons, remember, they go through the cloth. Well, they go through the blood, too. And when they're going through the blood, they irradiate the blood. Now, when you irradiate the blood, and remember, radiation lasts a long time. So they irradiate the blood, and then you put that irradiated blood out into ultraviolet light, like sunlight at an exposition, and it turns bright red just like we see. But normal blood, it never is bright red, right? It always goes, the longer, you know, the blood is there, goes from bright red to dark red to, you know, to basically brown and finally to black. Well, none of these blood stains are black. They're all bright red. And for a lot of reasons, uh, for, uh, people thought, oh, this has got to be paint. Couldn't possibly. But irradiated blood that's exposed to ultraviolet light absolutely turns everything bright red. So that's just another enigma. You know, how about the, the how did the, the the inside of the body get uh, also, you know, the backbone, the bones inside the hands, et cetera? How did all this inside information get to the surface of that cloth? I mean, how did the body become, you know, transparent? Well, in the particle radiation hypothesis, remember uh, the 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 inside particles in the backbone, they're, you know, simultaneously um, disintegrating along with the surface particles. But remember, in order for the backbone particles to hit the cloth, it's going to take a split second longer because they're more distant from the cloth. By that time, the surface particles will have already moved on to the cloth, opening the path. So in other words, all these particles, the path opens in front of them so that all the inside particles can then hit the cloth. But of course, they're going to do it with lesser intensity because they had to travel further and so you can uh, farther and so you can see that um, uh, basically uh, that you're going to get the three-dimensional perfect layering of an MRI and the story goes on and on you know the dorsal image is equal intensity to the frontal image we always wondered how can that be since the body is sitting right on top of the dorsal part of the image right the cloth and all the force of gravity and the weight of the body is down on that cloth. That should be the stronger image, the front one less so. However, that is not the case. In point of fact, they're equal intensity. But in a nuclear reaction, aha, the vacuum is created. And the vacuum pulls the two sheets toward the center at equal intensity. 
We've, it's so, it's unbelievable. Every enigma is answered by this particle radiation hypothesis. And like I said, if that happened, it's a miracle. Because just as Jesus' body was turning spiritual, right? I mean, just as that is happening, his physical body is being emblazoned on that linen cloth with the very particles that constituted it. And the very particles that constituted are strengthening that cloth, almost as if God had this plan, like, I'm really going to impress you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is going to be a real doozer. And of course, you know, when you get right down to it, there's even a way to confirm this hypothesis. I mean, obviously, the 42 enigmas explain, that's a good start. That's a real good reason to believe it. But the second thing that's very interesting is that whenever you have a low temperature nuclear reaction, you're always going to get cosmogenic isotopes like chlorine 36 or calcium 41 or something like that. I was just thinking that. I was thinking that as well. That exact same thing. I was just thinking that. Well, this is the deal. So in the future, right, I mean, um, there's going to be more investigations of the shroud. I mean, basically, you know, the the city council in Turin is going to have to open this up and we're going to have to get some more investigations going. What's the first thing all those physics guys are going to be looking for? Cosmogenic isotopes. If you find those cosmogenic isotopes in abundance on that shroud, bango, there's the confirmation. Hmm. I mean, a low temperature nuclear reaction happened. I can tell you what was going on 2,000 years ago when that image was formed. Basically, the, you know, the body undergoes low-temperature nuclear reaction. There's the partic- the, what we call the neutron flux and the proton-deuteron flux. These flows of particles, trillions upon trillions of particles, are zooming up into the cloth. And literally, as the body is becoming a spiritual body, the physical body is leaving the remnant of itself embedded with the very particles it constituted in the cloth, while the neutrons are strengthening the cloth, making it resistant to solids. I mean, the shroud is the most extraordinarily strong cloth and, and so forth in, in, in the whole wide world. So uh, anyway, the, the long and the short of it is, this is what's taking place, and it's followed by a very bright light and a boom. And that, of course, is probably what happened 2,000 years ago at Easter, Essentially, you've got this uh, uh, this uh, boom, this bright light, these particle flows that are producing this image. And, of course, the odds of this occurring by pure chance, as I just said, are tantamount to the same as the monkey typing the first chapter of Macbeth by random tapping of the keys perfectly in a single try. <laughs> All we're doing is looking right at the face of God who is winking at us in this scientific generation going, God shit. <laughs> that is amazing. That is just incredible. Okay, we've never had a guest come on and and give such an it's just an incredible answer to a single question. So that was amazing. Thank you. That was that was you great. Asked for it. I did. I did. It's it's my I own fault. Said, all I said was, "Can you dig into that for a second? <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like we should you probably don't. have you back just so we can talk about the yeah. Shroud of Turin and oh, the resurrection. Sure. That'd be good. I, I have one more question, though, about sure. near-death experiences, and, and I know that we're, we're pressed for time, but I, I want to ask this. And this kind of comes from my own pastoral experience working with people as they're, as they're coming to the end of their life. I have more than once had somebody, when I come into their hospital room or to their bedside, um, 
I've, I've prayed with their family. Um, I've anointed them. Maybe I've yeah. come back a second day to visit them or something. And they, they'll open their yeah. eyes and look at me and say, oh, I'm still here. Yeah. And when my grandfather was was dying, I remember he, he woke up at one point and he looked around and he said, was my mother here? And his mother died when he was six years old and he was 93 at the time. Uh, and another time he, he woke up and he looked around and he just asked us what day it was and yeah. and we told him and, and he he knew he like he knew where he was but it was like he was coming back yeah and and he was asking them about his brothers and talking about how he missed his brothers who had both predeceased yeah. him and so yeah. I, in my mind I wonder is is there not so much a it's not a near death but a a prior to death experience where people are seeing loved ones and and friends uh even be, who who have already died but they're seeing them like in anticipation of their own death Oh, yeah. Deathbed visions are exceedingly frequent, mm -hmm. and especially for kids who are, you know, obviously they're little kids, but they have terminal cancer, you know, and of course, angels will generally come to them, sometimes a relative, but mostly angels will come and say, well, Johnny, you know, um, you're going to die on Thursday at six o'clock. And he goes, oh, okay, you know, and uh, but you're going to be okay because you're going to come with me. And he goes, okay, you know, and he says, now, you know, your mother's going to be very sad, so you tell her that this is what's going to happen and explain to her that, you know, you saw me. So Johnny goes, well, Mom, you know, I'm going to die on Thursday at 6 o'clock, and the angel told me this, and I, I'm going with him. And she, oh, no, you're not going to die at 6 o'clock. No, then you've got the best medical care. That's not going to happen. You know, of course, the Johnny goes, but I think it is going to happen because the angel told me. And uh, But I just want you to know, Mom, I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to see you later, you know, in heaven because I'm going there with the angel right now. And, of course, the mother, you know, I'm not letting go Thursday at 6 o'clock, of course. These nurses report again and again in these deathbed vision things of children mm -hmm. right, in these children's hospitals. Yeah. They report, yeah, yeah, Thursday at 6 o'clock there, the child dies. You know, on cue, and of course, that's that's uh, very very typical. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, my own grandfather, very much like your, uh, I think you were saying your grandfather. Yeah, um, yeah, my grandfather. Um, he was a, a really truly brilliant man, and um, uh, this guy uh, was sitting in his room. He was about ninety eight years old, and he is surrounded by the family members, and of course, he's talking away and talking away, half in Dutch and half in in English, and finally. Uh, and somebody said, well, Granddaddy, who are you talking to? And he goes, I'm talking to the angels. You, you don't see the angels? They go, no, no, uh, we don't, but mm. go ahead and talk. He goes, okay. You know, so he continues talking with the angels. And then finally, of course, he looks up and he goes, can I go now? And everybody said, well, sure. Boom. Just like wow. that, he dies. Wow. And of course, you know, all I can say is, whoa. You know, the whole family just, you know, they couldn't believe it. So, you know, it is interesting um, that these things happen. They happen very frequently. And for little kids, it's, all, it's not just at the time of death. It's like beforehand. And sometimes they can see in the room. They'll say, oh, uh, do you see mom? Uh, do you see Lucy? Do you see, you know, whatever, some relative or somebody? And People will go, no, no, they right in the corner, you know, right there. You don't mm -hmm. see, no, no, you don't see them. But this happens very, very frequently. 
Um, they're called deathbed visions. And of, um, the children, they oftentimes have uh, visions, but they are sometimes two, three, four, uh, including weeks ahead of time. But they are uh-huh. aware of the time when, um, you know, the, the angel will come to get them. That is incredible. And just to see how Father, how, did you just all look of that behind God you? Is, I did. Uh, there was a noise outside my office. That's why I was looking behind. I'm sorry. Okay, I was just making sure you weren't looking for a relative. Or something. <laughs> no, there's nobody. There's no, nobody's coming to visit me. It's okay. Uh, no, it's just it's it's so beautiful yeah. to see how how you know in all of this in in the mystery of death and the in the mystery of uh, of what it is to die. There's there's even some insight. Um, and, yeah. and what what a yes. comfort that can be, especially to okay. people who who have faith. Um, but that there's also, and, and I'm I'm really moved by the amount of scientific knowledge that is in, and scientific effort that's been devoted to this, because I think to exactly to your point, Father Spitzer, this speaks to our scientific age and to a skeptical age mm-hmm. in a really powerful yeah. way. It's it's beautiful to hear this. Oh yeah, which is why the Gen Z's got to get this information. They put so much faith and stock in science, and they, yet all the scientific data is there. Just at the very moment when the scientists are becoming theists, the doctors are overwhelmingly theists. <laughs> Their young people are leaving the faith because they think there's no scientific evidence for God, the soul, or Jesus. Right. And it's just exactly the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if If someone wanted to... Other, other than your course, right? If someone wanted uh, easy access to readable material, yep. right? So like I know I would struggle to read a scientific journal just because I'm unfamiliar with so much of the jargon. Yeah. Um, but where, where would someone like me be able to find some more? Three places. Number one, Science at the Doorstep to God. Just uh, That's my brand new book from Ignatius Press. Just came out. Oh, and just read chapter four. It's really very, you know, it, of course, is going to present some scientific data, but it's readable, accessible. Right. At least that's what I have been told. Um, the second thing is go to our website, majacenter.com. When you go to majacenter.com, uh, just go to free resources and yes. go to articles and videos. And there you will see several articles and videos free of charge. Um, on this area of near-death experiences and um, also the Shroud of Turin and other things that we've discussed. Um, And so we also have a third thing. You can get it from the same website. It's called um, uh, uh, The Essential Modules. And it's basically seven modules that are, you go to modulescenter.com, click on Essential Modules, and there you will see something um, the, each of the modules is about 35 minutes each, but it goes through near-death experiences, uh, goes through Eucharistic miracles, it goes through the shroud evidence for Jesus, it, but it's meant for a, basically a middle school uh, to high school audience. Um, and so, you, again, that's free of charge. It's meant to be for even a middle schooler to understand and they do. They they uh, you know frequently have the success there. But if you really want um, a, you know a course, uh, I would go to Sophia Institute for Teachers and just pick up the Catholic Faith and Science for your course if you're a science teacher, or um, if you're a middle school teacher, uh, pick up Speak the Faith 
and uh, just uh, look at those courses because I'm telling you, um, mm-hmm. it, ter- you should see, just click on our student responses. It's unbelievable. It changes those kids' lives. I mean, they take that course, and I'm telling you, they will say, I, I was part of that group that was going to leave the faith. I was just moments away. Why didn't anybody tell me this stuff before? I can tell you this course has changed my life completely. Now, instead of feeling like a skeptic, I feel like the kind of person who can really help others to defend their faith. I mean, this is like again and again and again and again, uh, we find this in uh, those qualitative results, those um, survey uh, results, they're there on our website. I think it's called student endorsements or something like that on the website. Okay. Well, we'll, awesome. we'll make sure we link to that also in our, in our show notes so that our yeah, listeners can one. find an easy yep. way. But uh, Father Robert Spitzer, this is incredible. Thank you so much. This what a what a great conversation with you today. Well, thanks, Matt, and uh, and thanks, Father, for uh, doing this. Because got to tell you, um, uh, getting the word out is a uh, you know not my specialty, but it is yours. So thank you for giving me the. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Happy That's to have good, you on. I, I, I don't know much about isotopes. <laughs> <laughs> They're really important, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> thank you, Father. Right, okay, God bless you, you guys. Hey, everybody, this is Matt Sparazza. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Tangent. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to follow us at thetangent underscore Catholic on Instagram. It's one of the ways that we get our content out to you. So once again, thank you for listening and see you next time on The Tangent. God bless.